This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hey, this is Ed Jurdy from the Band of Heathens, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, and I'm behind the mic today at home in San Francisco. Okay, so if you listened last week, I was quite sick with a horrible cold. Um, you can probably tell I'm feeling better, but still have a few frogs in the throat. Uh, but again, our interview was recorded a few weeks ago, so all good there. So I am going to ask again, how are you? That's what I want to know. How is life out in Diggerland? Are, are you okay? Really, are you okay? And let me welcome our new friends from the Osiris Network. I hope we are expanding the musical palette a little bit over there. Let us know your thoughts. Seriously, drop us a line. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's the RNRAP on Facebook. Uh, yes, that's an old one. Uh, and RNR Archaeology on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, I know we're all yeah, Pantheon podcasts and all that, but we are still clearing up the boxes, moving the furniture around, trying to get the feng shui going in the new home. Okay, so please be patient with us. Um, you know, give us give us a moment, but but let us know what you're thinking and what's going on. What can we do better? Uh, remember, you know, especially you original diggers, <laughs> you'll always be able to say to your friends in the future, I remember before the Pantheon podcast days. Okay, so drop us a line there on the social, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Tell us what's up. Let us know how you're doing. Let us know what you like and don't like. Give us some insight. Uh, ask us to dig deep into uh, a subject you want to hear about. Uh, we're there for you. We're trying the best we can to uh, Fill out every nook and cranny in the story of rock and roll. What now? We may not get to it right away, but we do pay attention to everything you guys send, and we try to incorporate as many of your ideas into their shows as possible. So I'm I'm dead serious about that. Uh, let me add: you can always help us. Uh, yes, us, please, by adding a review on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. Uh, I cannot tell you how much of a big help that is for us, especially now that we have recently begun to pull shows like this uh, out of the big pipe 
uh, where our entire suite of rock and roll shows have been and out on their own. So, you know, help us out. Uh, take a moment, uh, scribble a few words, uh, give us a thumbs up uh, or not, whatever, whatever you're, you're feeling like and uh, give it to us. OK, here's the news. Yes. Uh, as I said last week, Pamela DeBar is coming to Pantheon Podcast with a new show. That is all, Pamela. And to remind you, uh, know that she is an accomplished writer, musician, and actress. She lived, uh, and lives, I should say, an extraordinary adventurous life, even today. And she is going to talk about it all. Uh, the show will be a, a, a bit of a free-for-all. Uh, it's really exciting. I'm really excited to, to launch this thing. And uh, a no-holds-to-bar. Uh, make sure you tune into Miss Pamela's Pajama Party coming up very soon on Pantheon Podcast. Okay, diggers, that is the housekeeping this week. So why don't we get the show started and meet our special guest. <laughs> Hey, ho, let's go. Uh, we're staying in the 90s this week, gang. But unlike our interview with the singular Tyson Mead uh, and a discussion of alt-rock, this week we are talking the 90s punk explosion of the roughly the same era. Again, one of the last great movements of rock and roll. So with us today is Ian Winwood, author of Smash, Green Day, The Offspring, Bad Religion, No Effects, and The 90s Punk Explosion. I started with American Idiot here because I think it's fair that that album is probably the last time you'll see rock and roll being immensely culturally relevant. It was probably the last big moment, the final swing at the bat for a musical art form that was then 50 years old when American Idiot was released. Both Ian and I discussed this at length, and both of us believe the rock and roll story as totem or cultural signifier, etc., is sadly past. But that's what we're talking about. That's what this show is about. That's what all of our shows are about, is taking this and trying to figure out how it all really worked, how it all came together, and what it all means. Um, let me lay down the gauntlet. Um, uh, but first, hold on. Uh, uh, let, me, let me step on my, on my box of soap here. Okay. Hip-hop is not rock and roll. But the next iteration of music beyond rock and roll, it is the music of the street now. The underground, the authentic sound that is still vibrant and evolving. Um, it's replaced rock and roll, and it needs its own story. I think there is overlap, but uh, I think it stands on its own, as rock and roll did against the amalgamation of sounds that helped form it. Now, will it be as significant as the rock age? Uh, I, I don't think that is known because uh, that story is still being written. And 
Don't get me wrong, please. There is plenty of hip-hop I really love. There's plenty of good hip-hop music out there. Um, but it's a very different animal than rock and roll, just as blues or country is to rock and roll. Uh, heresy, you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send your cards and letters. Okay, uh, off the soapbox. I just had to make that point. Um, all right, back to Ian, who's written an excellent book detailing how a musical genre... Um, spawned in the late 70s uh, and given up as commercially impotent uh, by the early 80s would rise from the ashes like some snotty-nosed black-clad phoenix in vans peddling a hook-filled sound and wry don't-give-a-fuck attitude on overdrive. Now, funny, uh, I'm pretty sure it is the longest gestating genre in rock and roll to become a dominating force. And for one, I'm glad it happened. Um, Ian has the the cred. Uh, He's written for Kerrang!, The Enemy, The Guardian, and Rolling Stone. Uh, I also think this is a story not widely told because people want to focus on the first iteration of punk from the 1970s. And Ian's done a great job of now putting this in a book and, and telling the full story. Okay, so let's get to it. All right, my pretties, let's meet Ian Winwood. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Ian Winwood. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, and I hope you are too. And hello to everybody. Uh, we're glad to have you here. Um, and I want to start with my first question. Is Green Day's 2004 American Idiot the last great rock and roll album? Um, I think, yes, it might well be. If it's not the last great rock and roll uh, album, it's the last great rock and roll album of truly totemic significance uh, in that it was a global phenomenon with sales to match. Um, There is a a, a British broadcaster, uh, actually an American by birth, a great broadcaster by the name of Paul Gambaccini, an aging, I don't want to do it with this age, an older man who has (laughs) seen many things come and go. And he posited the idea that the rock age has passed. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Right. Yeah. And that that doesn't mean that there will not be terrific rock albums in the future. Oh, no. Uh, and, and there is. There's plenty of good music to find. It's just not culturally resonant. That's right. And in the same way that the jazz age has passed. There's all manner of yeah. great jazz artists. I mean, mm. I, I struggle to name you one, but, but I hear that's true. Um, and th- that it might be the case for the rock age as well. Um, and that the things that we're sort of absorbing now, 
a, a, a sort of heritage thing. So, for example, uh, on Friday, I went to a screening of, of the, the Motley Crue movie, The Dirt. I don't care for Motley Crue at all. But it's this, it's this sort of soaking up of things that have already happened, uh, where bands are, are essentially brands now, you know? Uh, oh, yeah. Metallica are putting out watches and, and vodkas, and uh, I think it's whiskey, actually, <laughs> that they've issued. Uh, and and so I, I actually did a, a talk for the book uh, ju- just last month here in London uh, with uh, where I was interviewed by my friend Frank Turner, who who listeners some listeners may know as a uh, a punk rock campfire singer songwriter of of, of uh, who's who's become rather popular, very popular. And um, one of the things that he said was that it's now possible for for albums to be you know commercially successful although nothing sells as much as it used to do um but for example the the greatest showman soundtrack uh is an enormous seller but but i i haven't heard any of those songs you know uh and whereas sort of 15 years ago that would have been unlikely if not impossible and that yeah, every everybody heard american idiot at least once yeah. That's right. Our yeah. cultural antennae is is sort of is 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 pointing in all so many directions that enormous things are happening right under our nose, and we don't necessarily hear them. I think American Idiot. I mean, uh, you know, on its on its first run, on its initial run, uh, it sold 14 million copies. Yeah, that's uh, and huge. It had you know a numerous blockbusting singles. Um, it's not just a rock album. I I, I will I will. It is uh, it, uh, the fact that is. Uh, it, that it is a punk rock album is a hill on which I am willing to die. I am willing to fight to the death for that argument. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very pleased that the last truly totemic rock album is a punk rock album and is a punk rock album of, of, of such ambition uh, uh, and, and an adventure of spirit that I think, well, if, if, if that is to serve as the full stop, then I, I really can't think of, of, of anything more fitting. I completely agree. But let, so let's let's get the 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 superhero origin story of you, Ian. Uh, what kind of music was played in your house when you were growing up? Well, that's interesting uh, because when I when I was in my truly formative years, well, not my pre-formative years, so on, before the age of ten. Actually, no music at all was played in my house. I had really? no, we didn't have a record player, which seems remarkable, but we didn't. Uh, and I don't have any brothers or sisters. So that sort of uh, taking on board of music by the process of osmosis didn't happen either. Um, but I remember being in... Um, in a car with my with my mum and other family members when I was ten, uh, and um, the chart rundown, the, the top forty singles chart rundown, was on the radio, and uh, the band Motorhead uh, were just about to release uh, a live album called No Sleep Till Hammersmith, yeah, which, it, yeah. which I, it's definitely one of my top ten albums of all time. And they released a lead-off single from it, the, uh, the, the, the titular Motorhead. The song was called Motorhead. And it went into the, the singles chart at number six, which is, it in itself is just crazy. <laughs> and because they played whatever was on the Let chart... Let me with a top ten hit, right, right. <laughs> it was a top ten hit, and, and on it came. And 
I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical of people that say literally when they mean figuratively. But I think, I think literally changed my life. It was like the moment in The Wizard of Oz when everything turns into color. You know, it, oh, it was just that's such your a black and white and color moment. Okay, it was just such a jolt of electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think by that point, we, we, at that point, we we had a record player. I had no records, and my mum bought me the single, and then. When the album came out, bought me the album, uh, and then um, also bought me a T-shirt. And I, I, I have a, I, I, I used to have, I no longer have it, which infuriates me. Mm-hmm. A picture of me and my mum on holiday when I was ten years old, and me wearing a Motorhead T-shirt, which I thought, I thought, as far as credentials go, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Uh, and then, and then, as a as a teenager, uh, I had a job as a paper route, like 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 many people did, certainly at the time. Um, and this is sort of the, the mid to late 80s. And this magazine uh, popped into my, my paper bag, uh, and it was called Kerrang, which, which, which is a magazine that I still write for. Kerrang being an, an onomatopoeic word, K-E-R-R-A-N-G, exclamation point. And that's the sound that someone makes when they hit a guitar hard. And it covered loud music, not just metal, although a lot of metal, but also punk, and, and it, especially it broadened out when Nirvana broke. Uh, and I just thought this is this is the magazine that I've been waiting to read. Uh, and um, and I thought, you know what, I'd really like to write for that magazine. And my mum encouraged me to do so, really. So I took typing class at school and then, you know, studied English uh, and came to London, really, and, and chanced my arm and just, just interviewed interviewed a band, an American band that was over and typed up the, the, the interview and just hand-delivered it round to all the, all the music magazines in London and got my first gig and eventually came to write on Kerrang! And from that point, uh, because, you know, obviously I knew a lot more about music then, uh, when the punk rock wave broke, I was perfectly right there, positioned... Yeah, right there in the thick of it. To, to see it, and because, because that is really my music of choice... Mm-hmm. Um, um, certainly in terms of, you know, the more energetic, caffeinated kind of music, I was the person that was sent to interview Green Day from that point, uh, from that, from, from about 97, I interviewed them the first time. The Offspring was earlier than that. Bad Religion was earlier than that. And I've been the one that's been interviewing them, you know, from, from really from then to now, which seems extraordinary now that I say it. So when it came to putting the book together, I sort of had the contact books. Uh, and it seemed that I hadn't upset anyone too much that they weren't willing to speak with me. So they, they all came out. As the Offspring said, they all came out to play. So that, that, that's really from... That that's really it. That's really the montage of of, uh, of how we got from there to here. All right. Now, uh, some of our diggers may know that uh, you are a champion of the Chameleons of Canada. Nickel, excuse me, <clears throat> I, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. That's uh, all right. I, I do Bach. that to say Nickelback. Nickelbach. Bach, right? <laughs> yeah. Nickelbach. Yeah. Uh, I understand you got in some trouble with those guys. I did. I mean, what's what's your what's your policy on profanity? Uh, you can say whatever the fuck you want. Okay, right. I'm going to drop the worst word in the English language, other than Nickelback. Oh, 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 uh, this is the English, the, the worst word in the English language from an actual Brit. I know what word you're talking. Yeah, okay. So basically, I mean, I was, I, I, I was dispatched to, um, to Philadelphia uh, to uh, interview Nickelback. Um, and really, my idea for the story, and I ran it past the, 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 my features editor and said, yeah, that's a good angle, is how is this becoming so 
popular? What is it about this? Uh, and unlike Creed, who are somewhat similar, it, it, Nickelback was becoming successful in, in the UK. Um, so I went to see them uh, at the first Union Center, as it was then called, in Philadelphia, uh, which is where hockey fans will know the Philadelphia Flyers play. Yep. Uh, and they were on radio stations do Christmas concerts. K-Rock did one recently, of course, uh, and um, for charity. So Nickelback were like fourth down on the bill. Uh, Blink-182 headline, then it was Bush, then it was Sum 41, then, then it was Nickelback, and opening up were a band called Lit. And Nickelback were getting a good response. The, the, I'd already at this point done the interview, and it had not gone well. I found Chad, I'm not suggesting that, that, that I, was, I necessarily handled myself too heroically, but what were not particularly antagonistic questions uh, upset him quite, quite greatly, which, which, which is, you, you listeners might think, oh, well, that's, that's fair enough, and perhaps it is. But in my experience... People in bands don't mind being challenged. They don't mind defending their cause. And it is unusual. If you ask a question politely, uh, challenging what it is that they do, they generally quite like that. Uh, and, and I then try to write it up in good faith. Um, so, you know, so I, I, I was an honest broker. Despite not liking the band, I was, an, as far as I know how to be, I was, I was trying to be an honest broker. So that hadn't gone well. I'd been ushered out of the dressing room. He was having a meltdown during the, the, the photographs that were taking place after the interview. And it was an awkward scene. The band come on stage. There are 18,000 people in this arena, and... Um, and uh, 15,000 of them are cheering, 2,000 are silent, and maybe 1,000 are, are booing. So, it, you know, they're fourth down on the bill. It's not their show. I think, those, I think that ratio's in their favor. But there was a guy at the front who, instead of placing his middle fingers into his ears, was sticking them up at the band as they played. Uh, and the front man, Chad Kroger, uh, at the end of the first song, insisted that this man be thrown out, uh, this kid be thrown out. And, and Just because he's given the finger to uh, the lead singer. To the, to the mighty Nickelback. And, <laughs> and, I, and I remember just thinking, wow, this is, that's quite an extreme reaction. I mean, maybe, maybe it isn't, but I, I thought it was. Uh, and the security just didn't know what to do. And, and then, again, he, he, what seemed to be a very short fuse, he said, listen, we're going we're gonna to leave this stage if you don't get him out of here. So he was dealt with. And um, the okay, real... so just to make sure he didn't, he didn't hit Chad with a beer bottle or anything like that. Oh, nothing. Just throwing no. the middle finger up. It was just, yeah, two of them, to be fair. But, oh, yeah, the okay. middle finger. Oh, yeah, so that's he was, a difference. But whether he was thrown out of the arena or not, I, I, I can't say. But I don't think that mattered greatly to Chad. Uh, <laughs> he just wanted him out of his line of sight. Right. Now, the real crime in, in, in my industry, in, in music journalism, and I suppose journalism in general, it isn't censorship, it's self-censorship. So, so my intro of this piece d described exactly what I've just described to you now, the onstage, the onstage moment. And then I said, for anyone not employed by or not in love with Nickelback, the message is clear. New sentence, Chad Kroger, colon, what a cunt. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then there was a gap 
a, sp a gap of space, and then the second section began. So that sort of uh, Chad Kroger, for those five words, just hung there uh, at the bottom. So they, they were the bottom of the first section. And I remember filing the story and thinking, there's no earthly way that the, the magazine are going to print this. But that's what I wanted to write, and they'll send it back, and then I'll... I'll Fix I'll, it. To, yeah, yeah, I'll you'll, you'll edit. Okay, fine. I'll change it. But I'm not going to do that at the first time, of, well, before being asked, I'm going to file this. And my um, review, my features editor at the time, a, a god amongst men by the name of Dave Everly, rang up and, and he just he just couldn't, he was just laughing so hard. And they just, the magazine printed this. And, um, Uh-oh. And, and, and so, and it didn't go down very well. I thought rather with, with, with some panache, the, the band were then then began sending me uh, buckets of lilies, like enormous buckets of lilies, which which are funeral flowers. Yes, right. So I thought, and I thought that was rather stylish. I was quite <laughs> pleased with that. Uh, and then they would set to tour the UK, um, and um, and you know this is this is sort of how long ago this is. I think this is two thousand and two. Record companies used to put out singles. If a band was about to tour, they'd release another single from, from the parent album in physical form. And Kerrang! magazine would each week review the singles. And it just so happened that that week I was reviewing the singles. And now purely to amuse myself. I mean, I should say in the piece, I, wasn't, I didn't just have a, have a pop at, at Chad Club and Nickelback. I did try to explain what it was about them that I thought was deficient, which is that they took all of the, they took, essentially took the template of very substantial bands, particularly Soundgarden uh, and, and Alice in Chains and, and removed from it all of the, the rough edges and just, it was, and essentially yeah. made it like the Eagles. That's really. a fair it was the description. Eagles. It was the Eagles for the alternative generation. Uh, uh, of the people, you know, who weren't really of the alternative generation. Um, so there was something substantial, I would say, to the piece. Um, in the singles review, I was just, I was just having fun, really. And um, I, I called him it again, just for, just to amuse myself, really. I'm not sure I would do that again now. I think it was unnecessary. Um, but oh, the, the what, second time. I, that was my modus operandi. Uh, I remember, so they played, I mean, it was an arena tour here in the UK. They played the famous Wembley Arena. And on that night, I went with my friend to watch a football match, soccer match. Uh, didn't have a smart, this is in the days before smartphones. Got home, went, they went, went to bed, got up the next morning to a ream of emails saying, oh my God, have you heard? Have you, yeah. Are you going to do you, it? You, you got like, called well, out. You got called out, right, from the stage. Do what? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I got challenged by, by name, no less. <laughs> Uh, to a boxing match ah. from, from, the, from the stage at every UK arena show, <laughs> from, from Glasgow to London. Uh, and I thought, well, I've sort of marched my men up to the top of the hill here. I can't very well march them down again. And he said, you can wear, I, he said that, you know, you can wear a, 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 a head guard. And I yeah. thought, well, if I'm going to take a beat, that's what I actually said, if I'm going to take a beating, I'll, I'll take one like a man. Uh, and, um, and I, I, so I, I said, I'll forego the head guard. And, um, and I remember going into the Kerrang office, not quite sure what to make of this. And there, there's some people in the office are, 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 are humming the Rocky theme to me as I walk. 
<laughs> my dear friend Paul Brannigan, who was the news editor at the time, has been on the phone to the, the British Boxing Council to find out what is needed to stage a boxing match. Uh, and apparently, you don't, for anyone that wants to do it over here, you don't need a license. You just need a doctor. So plans were plans were in tra- <laughs> plans are in train, and it's it's difficult to overestimate the kind of beating that I would have taken. But and this, I mean, this story is a satisfactory ending for me. I'm not sure it does for anyone else. Nothing came of this, but I can I can at least sleep at night thinking, well, I didn't run and hide. I said I'll I'll, I'll face the music. I mean, you know, and the music that I was about to face was as bad as Nickelback's music in its own way. Um, but yeah, he wasn't pleased, and and um, you know, it was it was very serious. They were on a they were on a, a an independent label uh, called Roadrunner, and the management were trying to to get them off of Roadrunner, and we're using this as an example of something that wouldn't have happened if they were on a major. And I can absolutely categorically say that it would have happened if they were on a major. In fact, the only praise I had for the band in the piece was the fact that all this happened on an independent label. So that was nonsense. And it, But it's certainly one of the reasons that Nickelback don't do press. They turn down a Rolling Stone cover. They just they just don't need to do it. Um, but the, yeah, they got a very sharp lesson in, in the differences between the, the British press and, and the American press. Uh, in terms of what we can be like. Were it to all play out again, I don't think I would have perhaps behaved in the same way. (laughs) But do I retell the story with a little bit of pride? (laughs) Of course you do. Yes, I do. (laughs) All right, we've given way too much time to Nickelbach. Yeah, Uh, we really do. (laughs) All right, so why do a, a book on 90s punk? It seemed to me that it was a story that deserved telling and which hadn't been told, uh, in at least in the form that I told it, or, or, or I tell it, or try to tell it, or, and not, I don't think very well uh, in, in parts that, that, that it has been. Um, its two most closely related stories are, of course, the explosion of punk in the first instance in 1976. Mm. Um, in in 2016, that, that most horrible of years, 2016, I could not, it seemed to me that I could not turn on BBC4, which is its arts and culture and history channel, uh, that great broadcaster's uh, channel, you know, for, for the... For, for, more niche programming. I couldn't turn on that channel and not happen upon the documentary about 1976, much of which was wrong. Uh, and I was tired of, of, of hearing about The Clash and The Sex Pistols, as great as these bands are, obviously, The Clash, The Sex Pistols, over in New York, The Ramones. Um, so that sort of... I mean, I've had the idea for the book for quite a long, a long time, but that's, I think, re-energized the idea. Um, and then, of course, the scene that exploded immediately prior to to to, to the offspring and Green Day and, and the other. Oh, the grunge scene. Yeah, it was was the grunge scene, which, of course, it's ideologically speaking that that wouldn't have happened without without punk and the hardcore sensibilities throughout yeah. the 1980s. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's obviously a given. But none of the bands that exploded at that time, and and they really did explode. You know, let's let's be clear about that. Um, None of those bands that exploded identified as punk bands. Um, clearly, Nirvana had punk in them. Soundgarden were on SST, but Soundgarden were an extremely good metal band. Um, Nirvana were, uh, I mean, you could call them grunge, you could just call them rock. 
uh, you could call them pop rock even in, in with that with their innate sense of melody. Pearl Jam were essentially a classic rock band, but with a with a with with a credible classic rock band. Alice in Chains again a metal band. So the punk spirit, for want of a better phrase, ran through the the scene in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but none of the bands identified as being punk bands. And it's also worth remembering that that in the United States and, and in England particularly, such intense media focus uh, was was rained down upon them that the music, the music, the, the fraternity, and it really is fraternity, certainly at that time, of music journalists had kind of exhausted themselves lavishing praise on what they view to be the good guys, so that's Nirvana, mm. uh, and, pray, and, and disdain on, on what they view to be the, the, who they view to be the bad guys, which is Pearl Jam, which, and how ridiculous does that now seem? <laughs> um, when, when Green Day exploded and The Offspring exploded, they'd sort of tired themselves out and didn't really pay them that much attention. This was a radio and MTV-led uh, revolution. Um, and and really sort of gave them a ruffled shake of, of uh, ruffle, uh, ruffled their hair in a, in a oh aren't you guys cute kind of a way, but didn't seem particularly invested in their music or, or their accomplishments. Here in the UK, this thing called Britpop uh, yep. really sort of time. made mm-hmm. yeah sort of made Britain cool again, which for a long time it had not been. It had been sort of a client state for for American music. Uh, you know, whether it be hip-hop, whether it be Metallica, whether it be Nirvana. Uh, and yet suddenly along came Blur, along came Oasis, Pulp, subsequently Radiohead. And and the British music press was obsessed with this. And I, I happen to think rightly so. It just wasn't quite my thing. I've, I've, I've come to, to love it much more in my later years. So the story sort of wasn't really being acknowledged in, in a critical sense, even at the time. I mean, it took... It took uh, Rolling Stone almost a year uh, to put Green Day on the cover. The Offspring in '94 did almost no press. They were essentially a part-time band as all this started to happen for them. Uh, and I just thought there were all sorts of great stories here, but the what within this umbrella story. But the one that I, I the one that really propels me, uh, and I say this in the introduction to the book, is is that despite the fact that many of the people about whom that I'm writing about whom I'm writing have become millionaires and all of them have sustained careers. Um, they are sort of underdogs and they remain so. And, 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 and that appealed to me as a, as a writer on Kerrang, even when Kerrang was selling more than the, than the, the NME, that, which your listeners may know, the new musical express, yep. which is with the great iconic music paper. Uh, the NME always had greater cachet. And, and, and it, even to, to the day before it, they closed it down, it, it had greater cachet. So I quite like, I quite like being on Team Underdog. I support the Clippers rather than the Lakers, you know? And, and <laughs> the that, underdog. Always that, the underdog. That's, right. that's, that's from way back when the Clippers were a joke. I yeah. liked that idea. I liked being on Team Underdog. And I thought that yeah. this is – all of these other these scenes, John Savage wrote the Pistols book, England's Dreaming, which is indispensable. Um there's the book Everyone Loves Our Town about Seattle and and all sorts of all sorts of great books about about what we will loosely call.
called grunge. Um, but no one's really, no one's really written about this. And I, 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 it came together in my head, and I thought this is the book. I think certainly the music book that that I was born to write, really, to put it boldly. Well, as we've established, you know, you have been interviewing uh, these exact guys since yep. uh, their 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 first initial uh, uh, taste of success. So it does make sense that you would eventually come around to uh, to write the definitive book on the 90s punk era. So if, if you were asked by Webster's to give a succinct definition of a punk, what would your submission be? Well, <laughs> I think this is the great, this is the first time I've drawn breath, isn't it? I think this is the great philosophical uh, question of our age. What is punk? Um, and we could go down so many rabbit holes here that we would emerge at the I Mad Hatter's succinct. <laughs> at, at the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. We're entering the, the, the world of Alice through the looking glass here. Um, let me compartmentalize that a little bit. As it relates to the bands about which I am writing in, in Smash, it is this. Uh, it, it is a sound, all the bands, and, and, and the sound is... I don't think there's a punk sound. I think there's a punk rock sound. And already, and which is which is the template of which is the Ramones. And I'm already going down a bit of a rabbit hole there. So let's just leave that. So they they played punk rock music, but all of the bands about whom I'm writing in in Smash formed at a time when there was no precedent whatsoever, none, of an American punk rock band becoming successful. The Ramones, even the Ramones, never cracked the right. US 100. Never, not once. They toured in a van, uh, and in the States, at least, they were a club band, you know, and they, that, that was the most successful. Um, the major label bands uh, prior to that, X, were never particularly successful, commercially speaking. Who's could do the replacements? They were all critically lauded, but but the, you know, paying the rent—that was that was a struggle for them. So all of these bands, from, from Green Day, Rancid, Bad Religion, The Offspring, Pennywise, No Effects—all of these bands formed, at a, at, decided to play music and to tour the world playing music. That Knowing pretty, full well they weren't going to be it, financially but it, but successful, but it would, the, or at least it, the assumption was. Yeah, that 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 the most they could hope for was to make a living, but even that was so outside the realms of possibility. So they embarked on a path that was unpaved, and they paved that path. After that, and that's the reason that there, there were no later bands uh, in the scene, a, a, a couple of people have called me, have, have questioned why I don't then go on to, 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 to talk about bands that became subsequent, that, that came subsequently. And the answer is simple, is because those bands, some are great, some are very much less than great, but all of them formed and released albums knowing that it was at least possible to become wildly successful doing this. And these bands hit on their first album. You know, some 41 would be an example. Uh, they, you know, they hit first time out of the gate. All of the bands about whom I'm writing, when success found them, whether it was, you know, the 10 million uh, plus sales of, well, 17 million sales of, of Dookie, Green Day's third album, or Smash by The Offspring, which was one of the top 10 best-selling albums in the United States in 94, whether it was, you know, a gold album by Bad Religion, um, or, you know, all of these bands were, were at this point veteran bands. 
months. You know, yeah. they weren't. They yeah. weren't. They've been. They've been doing this a long time with no real expectation of reward. And I think that strictly that passion. Is the strictly passion. Yeah, I can come up with. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, uh, is is the punk genre the longest gestating musical form to come from the rock and roll era? Uh, it depends where you mean. Um, in the United, in the there is a, there is a world of difference between, in this sense, between the United Kingdom and the United States. Um, it, 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 I don't think it's helpful to think of the United States as fifty different countries, but it is probably at least I don't know twelve different regions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a band could be big in in uh, you know unless it truly crosses over like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, for example, or Metallica. A band can be. A significant draw in Cleveland and Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, say, uh, but not really particularly popular in Seattle and Portland, for example. In the United Kingdom, certainly at that time, if a band hits, they hit from the very north of Scotland to the very bottom end of Cornwall, uh, at the southernmost tip of England. You know, it's helpful to view England and Britain as a state rather than a country. Right. So the Sex Pistols, uh, the Sex Pistols album, the truly great, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols, was a number one album uh, here. So punk did break in the UK. It was a number one album, but... It, it was officially not number one, right? It's, no, uh, the album was number one. The, star, the story you're thinking of is the single God Save the Queen, oh, okay. which, which was number one right, at, uh, at, at the week right. of the Queen's Jubilee, the Queen's <laughs> yes. Silver Jubilee in 1977. Yeah. And the higher-ups, as David Letterman would call them, couldn't con- couldn't countenance this being the official, you know, public record number one single. So the figures were, shall we say, massaged hmm. and... Um, Rod Stewart's uh, first cut is the deepest. I think I've got... It's definitely Rod Stewart. I believe it was first cut is the deepest. <laughs> Despite uh, God Save the Queen selling uh, four copies for every one copy that Rod Stewart sold, made it to number one, and the pistols were, were stationed at number two in the official uh, chart listing. Yeah. Um, and, and it, you know, in the UK, punk was a public menace. It was truly terrifying. But it, 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 it went almost as quickly as it came. And, it, and there's a case to be made that by the time the Sex Pistols released, never mind the bollocks, the it, it thing already, was dead, really. Yeah, the Clash had yeah. the wit and the imagination to uh, maneuver themselves out of the corner into which they painted themselves. And then lesser bands, what I would call lesser bands, uh, such as Jam 69, emerged and, and, and it just became sort of as, as conformist as, as, as metal was really at the time. There was nothing greatly interesting about it. Um, in the US, I think you certainly have a case there that, you know, it, it, it took what from the earliest um, American punk bands, that, you know, the Ramones, a little bit later in, in, uh, in, in Los Angeles, but not much later. Um, yeah, that we, you know, we're talking a generation until until they, you know, they struck gold or they struck platinum. Actually, that's that's a that's a long gestation period. Yeah, I, yeah. I might even go back even further and say, you know, if you look at people like the Stooges, the MC5, uh, Velvet Underground, uh, the Garage right. Garage Bands, uh, uh, there, which you know, uh, again, none of them achieved any kind of uh, nope. uh, financial success uh, in any way until much later on. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then, and then the next generation, uh, the, the, the mid to late seventies, again, nothing, it's not 
until the 90s that uh, that you know to your point it all kind of comes together and this does become a, a musical style to uh, to rule them all uh, for a period of time so um uh the 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 book points to bad religion out of los angeles kind of as patient zero for what becomes yep. the popular 90s punk bands uh, and they were they were um uh, uh formed in 1980 um so but 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 before we can talk about, um, well, so that's really where everything begins from your point of view in this book, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about a, a gestation period, um, but it, this wasn't an even flow, a ticking over of time. Um I, I start the book in Los Angeles because the, the scene in Los Angeles, to me, the original scene uh, with Black Flag, of course, with the germs, X, Fear, uh, although I'm not sure I can, I can really wholeheartedly support Fear. But anyway, um, for me, it was the most exciting scene. It was the most interesting music, and it was the one that I liked the most. I, I, English punks might want to hang me from a lamppost from saying that for being treasonous, but there you have it. But by the trouble with a lot of these bands where they didn't perhaps have the imagination to, to really, or the talent to really execute a second act. And they were overtaken by events. And to, the two events that I identify were thrash metal, <laughs> uh, and particularly in 1986, the release of the Slayer's Deathless Rain in Blood album, of such, a record of such swivel-eyed fury. Uh, gnashing and foaming, you know, madness of it, uh, that it just made punk sound, sonically sound lame. Uh, it was a punk metal album with such amazing production values by yeah. Rick Rubin mm -hmm. that, that, that it, it couldn't be touched, you know, really. Um, so the punk scene had run out of energy anyway, and then along came this. And then, uh, and in a different part of L.A., uh, you had you had the emergence of NWA, particularly NWA, but but gangster rap, uh, punks famously were you know received a terrible time at the hands of of, of the LAPD under the under the leadership of Darrell Gates. But, you know, Black Flag concerts were, were were broken up, Dead Kennedys concerts were broken up, riots were not uncommon, uh, and police brutality was was not uncommon either. The difference was that for for the for the for the y y young men uh, who who were who comprised NWA, this was a very different thing entirely because um, the, you know this was b before Rodney King. The police it, it was a matter of life and death to these people, and it wasn't uh, to the people in NWA. Uh, it wasn't it, you know people chose to become punks. People don't choose the color of their skin. They're born with it and they're identified uh, by it. So their anger was, was at, was at a, a much more justifiable, higher pitched level. And so they were singing about shooting police officers in the face. And regardless of what you think of that kind of polemic, there is no, there is no doubting its urgency and its immediacy. And that too made punk sound a bit lame. And I do honestly believe that sort of 87, 88, there was a chance of the, of the a very real possibility that the pilot light would, would flicker out and not return, would not be reignited. A band who formed in 1980, who were by any measure second, second tier, third tier perhaps even, uh, bad religion, uh, had been sort of a 
they'd made a, a bit of initial splash, but they'd sort of been in hibernation for for, for a number of years. The singer Greg Graffin was attending uh, a college in Wisconsin. Uh, he returned to, uh, to to UCLA uh, to study, and the band sort of got back together. Their guitarist, uh, a, a, a pivotal part of the story, a guitarist by the name of Brett Gurevitz, uh, who founded the label on which Bad Religion released their music, a label yeah, called Epitaph, mm-hmm. with a $1,500 loan from his father, Richard. Um, he'd been putting in serious hours recording uh, albums for bands at the very start of their careers um, for you know two days, $150 a day, I think it was, for which you'd get him the studio and you'd emerge with an album. So he knew how to make music very quickly, very fast, very efficiently. He, you know, he served a, a hard, grueling apprenticeship. They were offered a, a, a bad religion. Were offered a concert, uh, and they'd played only a handful of shows over the last sort of five years, maybe twenty shows. Uh, released one EP in, in, in over the past five years, um, which only contained four new songs. Really, were a band in hibernation. They were offered a, a concert up at uh, a, a, a very famous underground punk club in Berkeley called Gilman, nine two four Gilman Street, shorthand being Gilman. They rode up there in their van. The show went much better than they anticipated. They thought, oh well, that we didn't expect that. How about we make an album? And it really was as sort of casual as that. And they got together and they made an album called Suffer. And what Suffer did was it it kept the pilot light alive, but it also sort of repositioned punk rock into less of an attitude, or the attitude still remained, but it was more of the sound. It's not a particularly angry album. It is fast. It's highly melodic. You could easily play those songs on an acoustic guitar. And when it was released, although by no means an overnight success, we're talking, you know, 10,000 copies sold, then, you know, doubled to 20,000 copies. But like the Sex Pistols, when they played at the Manchester Free Trade, Lesser Free Trade Hall here in England, there were, you know, maybe 30, 40 people in the audience. But the people were the right people. The people that went on to form the Smiths. Uh, people that went on to form Joy Division you know these were you know all the right like and this is the case with the Velvet Underground as well not successful particularly but all the right people heard them and this was the case with 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 Bad Religion Uh, in about about 1988 would suffer it was exactly 1988 yeah and and I I write in the book that that, you know many bands are uh, are starving for success Bad Religion were merely peckish you know they weren't they weren't that hungry uh, and it sort of very slowly, and with no one really noticing, kept the thing alive. And Bad Religion continued to grow to the point where just before the the um, the, the explosion of 1994, uh, they, 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 they played at the Hollywood Palladium. That, that was the gold standard, with Green Day supporting, actually. Uh, they played at the yeah, Hollywood uh, Palladium. More like uh, 3,000 people. Yeah, 3,000 3, and a bit. Uh, people and that that you know that was the gold standard. But it, the story is also significant because, as well as reawakening bad religion, it also 
reawakened Epitaph Records and they began putting uh, music out by other bands, No right. Effects, mm-hmm. uh, The Offspring, Offspring, and then in time, Rancid. Mm-hmm. And so the two are sort of uh, indivisible, really. But I do believe, I mean, there are bands that, that, that were far more successful than Bad Religion, but in terms of, of, of the gestation period and just really bringing the defibrillator to the corpse that was, that was punk rock, um, they are the most important band in my story. Okay, so um, I kind of like the mid-1960s response to the original British invasion. This really is a California story, right? It really is, and that, that struck me as well. Um, I mean, I, I, when people asked me what I was working on, uh, you know, a year ago, um, or 18 months ago when it, when it was in the writing stage rather than the, 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 the endless redrafting that I did, um, I would say oh, I'm writing a book about American punk rock. And it dawned on me as the story evolved that really I was writing a book about Californian punk rock. And in in the way that the 1976... Uh, Which is emerged, the Bowery, Bowery, New York, uh, and London yeah, story. Yeah, that, was, that right? was a tale of two cities. It was mm-hmm. a tale of London and New York, essentially. Um, but this was a tale of, 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 if not two cities, two areas. It was, it was uh, Los Angeles... Uh, including the Valley and Orange County, uh, and it was also the Bay Area, but not San Francisco, no, oddly Oakland. enough. Uh, Berkeley. For the most part, yeah. Oakland and Berkeley. Yeah. Um, and and th- those were the two hotbeds. As for why that might be, I'm not entirely sure, uh, in the same way that that, uh, that I'm not entirely sure why London and New York were the, were the, the, the fulcrums for, for 1976. But yeah, it was, it was, I don't think my story leaves California. I mean, there are parts of it told in England, uh, but because I, I was there to see the stuff happened when it happened in England. Um, but th- these are just America, uh, Californian bands, you know, who happened to be in England. Um, it was, it was solely, uh, solely a Californian phenomenon. Yeah, um, you you point to 1994 as the real nexus point, the the sort of Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment, and that's because for the first time, two punk bands have huge real-time commercial success, that being The Offspring's Smash and Green Day's Dookie. Mm. Um, uh, So, you know... uh, know, uh, Why do you think that happened at that moment? Why 1994? I think, uh, as with their music, the timing was perfect. Um, and by the way, Offspring, Orange County, uh, Green Day, uh, Oakland, uh, Berkeley. Oakland, Berkeley, yeah. Um, it, in, it, when Nirvana uh, exploded, I keep using the word explosion, but I, I think it's fitting. When Nirvana exploded... Uh, and, decimated and, decimated and I the, 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 uh, the previous, you know, kind of hair metal... Uh, uh, arena rock uh, that was going on at the time, yeah, yeah. Overnight, overnight. Motley, Motley Crue went from playing, you know, stadiums to yeah, yeah, to playing clubs, you know, and 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 you know, overwhelmingly, my my response to that was good riddance <laughs> to bad rubbish. But but very quickly, as I said, the sheer amount of of media interest trained on Seattle and and the the intense pressure that these bands were placed over. I mean, it's interesting because this was the first time that it was no longer 
taken as a given that the more success a band received, the happier that band would be. Suddenly, success was a complicated thing, and it cost Kurt Cobain his life. I mean, this 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 needs remembering. Uh, and 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 in the fullness of time, there would be a lot of lot more death come out of Seattle, um, and it, it it had become heavy, you know, in in in, in not a good way. It, 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 by '94 and, and and the death of of Kurt Cobain in in April of '94, um, and you know I, I you know I I, I, I I was there to witness this. It had become a bit of a drag. Um, Pearl Jam were having struggles, you know, with 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 how they were were, were dealing with success. Um, the bands weren't a lot of fun to interview. They were very guarded. A lot of the questions were about credibility and stuff. And it was just it it, it had just become a very inward looking and not a fun thing. The music. In undoubtedly was much better than it had been four years earlier, with the exception of many good bands, you know, Fishbone, Jane's Addiction, Faith No More, Metallica, yeah. mm-hmm. Guns N' Roses. There were, there were good bands, but the, you're right, that, that hair metal, cocaine strip scene, that was gone. That was gone, and it, and it wasn't coming back. Never has. Um, yeah, there's but, never but been the, a resurgence. But, but the, the music itself, aside from the music itself, the whole thing had become really heavy and not much fun uh and um incredibly complicated and into the i mean i i described uh, nirvana's bloodstained throne being vacated by the by the death of of kurt cobain and appetite there was an appetite for 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 bands who were, and I and I, I mean this sincerely, with no caveats at all, who were equally credible to the to the to the ones that had immediately preceded them, but with a, just a lighter touch, a know? little more tongue in cheek. Um, yeah, to emerge and and, and a, a, li- a little more universal, a little less brooding. Uh, although you know, Dookie, particularly as uh, you know, its its themes are that of alienation. But just the way it was presented and the energy levels were, were higher. It was caffeinated. Uh, and suddenly, and so the handover was quite seamless. It, it, you know, it was just like tuning in. Uh, the radio had, 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 um, had gone out of, of, of focus a little bit and, and it was just resetting the dial and suddenly this new sound, which had much in common with the old sound in terms of its spirit and its credibility and certainly its... its uh, it's it's um, ethics of you know doing things for oneself and and touring in vans and all of that stuff, but it was just a bit, it was just a bit more enjoyable, you know, and um, and and I think it was really a question of timing. So explain to the diggers here what what was the difference between the Southern California scene uh, of the time and the Bay Area. There is a difference in terms of sound, but I think that you would have to be more than conversant in 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 the music to 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 identify it. Um, I'm not suggesting you'd have to have spent a year writing a book about it, but you'd you'd you'd, you'd, you'd have to have something of an ear to say, okay, well, this is a Southern Californian sound, and this is a Northern Californian sound. So we can leave that aside for the most part. The difference is class. That's the key oh, difference, yes. oh, and yes. that might be, that might Dexter Hall and the PhD uh, and uh, Dex- and Billy Joe Armstrong, uh, uh, the the rough and tumble uh, every guy. 
Yeah, the, the 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 bands from the Bay Area scene did not have a plan B. I remember once asking Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day if he if 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 success hadn't come calling, you know, with his impossible talents as a, as a songwriter, and I do think he's the most fluent songwriter of, of his generation. What 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 would his life have looked like? What would he have done for a living? And and he answered, oh, I would have I would have probably been a, a TV repairman or a, or a, or a pool cleaner because that's what a lot of my friends do. And I was struck by how uh, content he seemed with that with that um, with that scenario. As 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 you know, surely he's right to be. A lot of times if you ask that question, the answer you get is, oh, dude, I, I would have been dead or I would have been in jail. Um, you know, the, the, these were working class kids. This, and this came as a surprise to me um, when I learned, and I learned it before writing the book, that, that America tries to pretend that it doesn't have a class system. And it's sort of little secret is that really it oh, does. Yeah. It's just not quite as obscure. It's just not quite as obsessed with it as we are here in the UK. Um, but there is a class system. Well, you guys have been uh, at it much longer all, than we have, so give us time. <laughs> we've been at it much longer, and boy, does it endure. Um, but, uh, and up in the Bay Area, um, you know, the, the, the band that would become, the, the, the folks that would become Rancid, and would form Rancid, that their, their, their leader, Tim Armstrong, was living in a Salvation Army hostel when Brett Gurevitz said to him, I will give your band a record deal. It so happened he didn't even have a band at the time. It's just that the band that he had come from, Operation Ivy, had impressed Brett so much that he would he'd take it, you know, sound unheard. Down in uh, in Southern California, you're right, um, Dexter Holland was studying at uh, USC, um, uh, Brett had his had his record company and his uh, and his studio work to fall back on if if, if he needed it. He's Greg Graffin, the singer in Bad Religion, uh, well he he's now the professor of evolutionary biology at Cornell <laughs> University, no less. Which is which is I love the sort of duality of, yeah, those, of, of the, what awesome. do you do for a living? Well, you mean my day I'm, job I'm, or my night job, right? <laughs> You know, it's just, I think it's just fantastic. I used to think of it as a dichotomy, but I, I no longer do. I think that the two coexist quite, quite harmoniously. Um, you know, even, even the, more, the most chaotic band of, 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 of that community, No Effects, Fat Mike, the singer of No Effects, has a college degree. The singer from Pennywise, you know, could have gone in, easily gone into white-collar professions. And it seemed that that, uh, that that's the distinction, that all of these had, had, had backup plans, or if not plans, backup possibilities if they were needed. Uh, and I don't think that that makes them any less valid. In fact, it, there is an argument to be made that it makes them perhaps yet more valid because they didn't, they really didn't have to be doing this stuff, you know? They had, you know, they had respectable livings uh, that, that, that yeah, they the could make. And, uh, and some of yeah. them actually, as we've discussed with mm -hmm. Greg Graffin and Dexter Holland, I actually quote Dexter Holland's um, doctorate thesis is available online. It's a matter of public record. For anyone that, that, that thinks that punk equates to stupidity, you should go online and have a look at this paper because it is just a selection of X's and squiggles and fours. It's like reading hieroglyphics. So I think that yeah. that's the difference. So 1994 is the atomic uh, explosion, uh, and, and we, we've established the, 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 the precursors, the, the first wave, and the fact punk continues mm -hmm. after its sell-by date in Los Angeles. Uh, and by the way, you know, the Los Angeles punk scene, it's kind of, 
you know that that that's the most unusual the 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 the, the late seventies version. Um, uh, you know the you know the the rat a tat tat of the Ramones and and certainly uh, the Sex Pistols uh, and and those sort of groups. But in in L.A. like X, I, I I I can barely even call them punk. It's it's more more maybe just an attitude with these Western sort of uh, of of expansion ideals and and inclusion of of other forms of music that just weren't being taken seriously by the uh, the music uh, industry at the time, uh, and and that's what came out of there. So, but there are there are a few that kind of have some slight commercial success, like Social Distortion, uh, by becoming more mainstream. Yeah. But you know, by the mid '80s, as we we've, we've established, you know, this is pretty uh, the mid the late '80s. This is pretty much a kind of a, a, a dead corpse. So, how does a seemingly dead genre reanimate itself and take over? the world for a time it does so quietly and with no one paying attention the kind of people that should be paying attention aren't paying attention in in the I, in the book i call it the, the post nirvana gold rush uh and it was a period when major label a uh, and r departments were signing bands that really were such a, 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 a an unfathomable fate for a major label, uh, millions of dollars were being thrown in the direction of uh, bands such as Helmet, who's uh, who, who are, I mean, they're not really to my taste, but were were their their uh, key influence was John Coltrane. Um, yet into Scott Records, records threw one point three million dollars at them. This is the point when one point three million dollars was one point three million dollars. <laughs> Curiously, with the exception of Bad Religion, who uh, in, a, in a rather pivotal decision signed to, to, to Atlantic and Green Day uh, went to Warner Brothers uh, and a band called Jawbreaker who were one of the, the, the bands that didn't make the cut in the book because the, it, their story didn't quite fit my, my narrative um, they went to a major as well and that didn't work out but only three bands went to, went to major labels of all the punk bands uh, and uh, you know as, as, we've, as, we, as we've discussed you know this is a point when, when bands who had much much less commercial appeal um, were being snapped up by major labels as to why the major labels didn't really pay it any attention, I don't, I can't, I can't fathom that out for the life of me. Um, other than the, the, the punk scene, it had its own thing going on. It had its record label in Epitaph, up north in the Bay Area, it had Lookout Records, um, who released the first two Green Day albums and, and released um, the album Energy by Operation Ivy. Um, it had its own magazines. It had Flipside down in down in Southern California. It had Maximum Rock and Roll up in Northern California. It had its circuit of touring. It didn't really need. Uh, it was ticking along quite nicely on its own. So it was it was a very hermetically sealed scene. Um, and then I think it really was nothing more than you know. Bad Religion had kept the scene going with Suffer. Had sort of with the release of each subsequent album, had pushed their sales a little bit further. I mean, we're sort of talking, you know, 100,000 copies of, it, of, it, of each album. You know, these aren't, these aren't kill-shattering numbers by any means. But, but you know, it, it was being pushed slightly forward. Um, as to, and and I, I imagine that Green Day was signed by Warners 
um, I guess the higher ups in the company possibly thought uh, that that, that these, this was just another Nirvana band that might appeal to the Nirvana market. The man that actually signed them, a, a, a god amongst men, one of the nicest people I, I've ever spoken to and the mo- most helpful, uh, actually produced Dookie. His name is Rob yeah. Cavallo, but he was also their A&R representative as well, a very very low down in the company. Uh, and he, he, he was given a tape of the demos that would, of the songs, some of the songs that would feature on Dookie. And he put the, we really put the demo uh, in the tape, the demo tape in his, in his car stereo and was immediately transformed. He went to visit the band up in, uh, up, I think they were living in, in, a, in, in Berkeley at the time, uh, got stoned with the band, sort of passed their test because all these bands had reservations about signing to majors. Green Day had very real reservations about signing to a major. Um, Rob Cavallo was able to play Beatles songs while sitting on an upturned bucket on an acoustic guitar, stoned, and he knew all of the Beatles songs and the the two parties got along famously. Green Green Day's deal breaker uh, was that they wanted... Uh, Warner Brothers offered them a $200,000 advance, out of which came the recording budget for Dookie. Green Day wanted $25,000 more so they could get a van. Now, this is I think this is quite telling. They didn't want a tour bus. Hair metal bands wanted tour buses, and they wanted first-class airplane tickets. Green Day wanted a, a, a van that they could tour Just in. a more reliable so, van. Bought... <laughs> yeah, yeah they, 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 they bought, they bought a, a converted uh, mobile li- a mobile library that they converted and was driven around the country by their drummer's father. This this Very this, cool. this right. vehicle uh, is now universally known as the Buckmobile, <laughs> and everyone I spoke to made some reference to mm. the Buckmobile. Um, and and I don't I'm not sure that either party. Uh, Rob Cavallo, I know for sure, thought they might be able to turn a small profit on Dookie. Uh, Billy Joe really had no idea what was going to happen. It was just really a throw of the dice. And I just think, again, I, I, I don't, I, you know, the, that the infrastructure was in place, that these bands were now veteran bands and doing okay on their own uh, w- w- was, was a given. But I think without the timing of, of, of uh, like I said, the scene becoming heavy, I, I just think that the, the, the soil was was just primed perfectly for this, for this to well, flower. Well, if I may, I might add something, and that is, you know, especially because of bad religion. And the thing about bad religion is that they, they have, like, um, some real musicality that maybe some of the earlier band, mm. uh, punk bands were, were kind of missing. They have uh, 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 harmonies uh, going on. And, of course, as you get into the, this 90s version, the musicality is, 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 is a little bit more commercial, a little bit more digestible to a larger audience. That may be a, a factor. Also, you know, a lot of people like throwing around the DIY ethic these days for pretty much everything, but more than any other musical genre, and we kind of touched on this just a minute ago, and, you know, didn't these people invent the modern DIY ethic? Yes, to- totally they did. And and the, it, one of the most dis- disheartening aspects of, 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 of the explosion of 1994, for me, was punks who, or people, or people who liked punk music at least, who saw the Ramones, who saw the Clash, 
they were so quick to say this isn't punk, this isn't punk, this isn't punk, and it's just you you can break this down uh, and, and dismantle this argument on all manner of fronts. I'll I'll do it on two. One of which is if green in terms of a sound, if Green Day aren't punk. Okay, you can make that case if you like, but then neither are the Buzzcocks and neither are the Ramones. And, and who but an idiot would suggest that that would be true? But the, the, what? So, so you would agree that they, they, after it's all said and done, punk rock isn't so much a musical style, but a musical attitude. Uh, it's it's both. I think. I, I think it's both. Uh, I mean, I'd say that Public Image Limited are a punk band. But is yeah. their sound what you might identify as punk? No, possibly not. So it's both. Um, but in terms of, of, of the spirit, and actually the commitment to it, you know, spirits, as a, as a description, spirit kind of floats in the air a little bit, like spirits. But they actually had a commitment to this. Green Day undertook a tour uh, upon the release of their second album, Kaplunk, uh, of European squats, uh, and, and dives um, that took place in the winter of 91 into 92. Um, and the conditions of, they, of, this, of this tour were so grueling that Billy Joe Armstrong contracted body lice <laughs> and had to shave every single hair from his body. They played to four Ouch. people, I believe it was, in a snowstorm uh, in Copenhagen, drove through a snowstorm. Their van caught fire. Uh, they had a gun pulled on them. Um, they, uh, it, they'd been in Europe for so long that Billy Johnson began speaking more slowly and lost much of his Californian accent. And these were, you know, truly grueling, grueling uh, conditions that, that lesser bands would, would just have, have, have balked at. And No Effects, Fat Mike from No Effects, talks about, um, you know, their early European tours and driving in the most cramped conditions, two bands in a van, and driving 18 hours from Rome to somewhere in, in northern Europe, I forget the, the city that, that it was, uh, and none of them really complained about this, you know. This 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 was just what they did, uh, and and so all of these bands had, had I suppose, the only well, one of the ways to describe it is they paid their dues. They really had. So this uh, so although it may have looked like they came out of nowhere to people who weren't particularly or at all aware of of the backstory. That's their problem that they think that. That's not the band's problems. These bands had backstories, you know. They had they they they, they had credentials. They they you know they'd done their stint in single A, double A, and triple A ball before they got to the majors, and that is a matter of record. Well, I, I think we're establishing that through our conversation today. That uh, you know this long gestation period, uh, these guys were in the gr- underground, and some you know like Bad Religion and No Effects, uh, which formed in 1983. Um, you know, they 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 were playing for a, a decade or more uh, before uh, there was any kind of real success because of what happened with uh, with uh, with Green Day and the Offspring and some others that '94 explosion. But um, you know, so yeah. it, it, it's funny how how these bands who formed in the bad old days stuck it out. Uh, and are revered when the early '90s or the mid '90s revival comes along. Yeah, and 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 the the apprenticeship of of no effects is 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 particularly remarkable, Be, because for the first 
for at least seven years of their existence, they were terrible. They were a really, really bad band. And and Fat Mike, their 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 band, the band leader, will 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 be the first to 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 say that they were they were awful. And you know they'd go out on these terrible, gnarly tours of the United States. And they, you know this is the, this is the great the great divide between. Uh, he, me here in England and you in the in the United States is the concept of distance. Yeah. It doesn't seem very far for you to go to five hours to drive five hours to Vegas. In 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 the American mindset, that's quite close. In to the, to, to to someone in the UK, that's like the, that's like the different side of the country. It's the yeah. top end yeah. of the country. I could. Scotland in that time, and it seems like a massive distance. So they tour in the van on these these vast tours, and the audiences on their third tour were smaller than the audiences that came out to see them on the first tour. Their their, their success was it was it wasn't snowballing; it was melting. And yet they carried on, you know, and 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 got to the point where they're they're they're, they're one of the most fantastic bands. Uh, I'd say one of the best, one of the, be- the best American bands I've heard, and certainly one of the best American punk bands. But yeah, they just, they just, they were, they, they, all of these bands were sort of like wily coyote, you know. They, 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 they persisted, but never really succeeded to to any. But yet there they were, uh, just getting better, ticking along. And by the time the the the, the mainstream attention had focused on them. They already had their own thing going on, and they were they were they were fine. They were ready to to weather whatever storms were coming their way because they'd, they'd already done they'd already done their duty on the front line. Yeah, so you know, we agree that the DIY ethic uh, is something that is uh, inherent in uh, in these folks. Uh, it, this this is this is a hmm. California story, and in, in in it really starts in in LA in the in the in the early '80s and sets the stage for success in the '90s. So let's let's talk a little bit about hmm. how the communication scenes uh, were different between those two eras? Um, wh- wh- how do you mean by so, that? I'm sorry so, if I'm not like, I, you know, basically what I, what I see here is that, you know, I mean, this was all in the underground uh, in the 80s. There was no MTV uh, or radio airplay of any commercial significance. But in the 90s, that's a totally different story. Oh yes, that, that, that's that's right, uh, and and in in a way, it's it's sort of. I don't know if it, if it, if it perhaps it unintentionally sounded the death knell uh, for what would come to be the decline of music journalism. Um, certainly, as, as it pertained to, to to guitar-based music, um, because the press didn't really write about these bands very much. Um, I. At, at the time, was at the coalface writing for smaller, largely metal magazines. I'd yet to progress to to the major leagues of Kerrang, um, and I was able to get Bad Religion uh, into the pages. I was able to get The Offspring into the pages, but no more than sort of maybe ten thousand people were buying these magazines uh, and and then passing them along to their friends. So maybe thirty thousand people would read it. Um, certainly, the major players were paying paying it no mind at all. They weren't paying Bad Religion any mind. I remember Rip Magazine, the the, the famous uh, metal magazine in 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 the U.S., a decent magazine as it goes. They did put Bad Religion on the cover uh, in the latter part of 94, but it, it included the headline, who are this band and why the hell are they on the cover? So, you know, <laughs> there you go. That, that, that sort of, 
Yeah, that sort of. But at the same time, Greg Graffin, the, the the singer in Bad Religion, uh, recalls that he was he was by then uh, at Cornell. Uh, I believe, uh, yeah, it was at like Cornell because it was upstate New York. You'll have to forgive my geographical shortcomings here. Um, it was Cornell, and and uh, and he, the, the town uh, he was living in, uh, had an underground record store and and a, a mainstream record store at the mall. And when he first got to town, uh, he um, he could see Bad Religion records, of course, at the at the underground store, but nothing in the mall. And he went in one day when, when Bad Religion's breakthrough LP, in least in mainstream terms, break, breakthrough LP, Stranger Than Fiction, also released in 1994, uh, came out. And his albums were racked deep. You know, there were, there, were, there were a dozen copies of Stranger Than Fiction. And one day he went into the store, and it was one of those where they had a giant screen at the back. I imagine made up of lots of separate screens. That, that, that's sometimes what, you, what they used to have in the UK. And on that, those screens, we was playing MTV, and the, the 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 video for the song "21st Century Boy" was playing, and that was the difference. But the music press didn't really give it the attention it deserved. K Rock in Los Angeles picked up on the songs from that. That's the most influential rock radio station in 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 the US certainly at the time. From that, other radio stations picked it up across the country and then overseas, and particularly MTV, uh, picked up both uh, the Offspring's lead-off single, uh, Come Out and Play. They picked that up immediately. Green Day's Longview, which came out before, took a little bit longer to, to gain traction, but Warner Brothers just didn't give up on it. And it was then, you know, the, the, the listeners, you know, whether you call I prefer listeners to kids, but the kids... You know, they didn't really need them for the first time, perhaps with guitar music. They didn't need a magazine to tell them uh, what was happening. They didn't need it to make sense of it. Of course, these channels and these radio stations played Nirvana uh, and other bands that came from that period. But the press also gave them uh, uh, too much attention, actually. This was the first time that the press weren't really interested, but the, but the broadcasters were. And in that sense, it can be seen as a, a sort of a precursor to the Internet age, I think. No longer did they need did, did, they didn't need writers to articulate what it was they, they were hearing. No, they had anymore. their own tribe, uh, their own way to communicate. Uh, and uh, you know they didn't need the uh, the mainstream media in in any way. To your point, uh, a little bit more mm. like uh, uh, the tribes of today, the fragmentation that's uh, been brought on by the internet. Sure, that's exactly right. Yeah, um, yeah. It's only they didn't need need permission, and and also one of the things. Uh, that also was was being smashed, if you'll excuse my pun, is that, uh, and I think of all the stories in in in, in the book, this is the one that that I think deserves the most uh, the most attention, uh, is that one of these two albums. So that you know the the albums that really broke the, the glass ceiling was were Dookie and Smash. Smash was released on an independent label. Smash was released right. on Epitaph. Uh, Epitaph at the time. Uh, was selling about a million albums uh, a year, Um, 500,000 in Europe, although curiously not in the UK. The UK remained largely indifferent to to the bands about whom I'm writing uh, until uh, until, until 94, Mm -hmm. for the most part. Um, uh, So in mainland Europe and in the US, they were were shipping a million albums. Uh, 
but along comes Smash Brett Gurevich, the label owner. He is the rough mixers of of the uh, of the album, and immediately recognizes the potential here. The band, interestingly, did not. The band just thought they were making another record. Outside ears of Brett Gurevich thought this this could really go. Uh, he hired a radio plugger um, for the first time, uh, who took the. The, the single, the lead-off single, come out and play to 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 K Rock, who put it on the air. At this point, things are moving so quickly. Brett has to, in order to meet the demand from 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 retailers, he has to um, he has to remortgage his house in order to free up two hundred thousand dollars in capital with which he can pay pressing plants to make these records. I mean he could have, you know, lost everything, easily lost everything he owned on this gamble. Um this now moves so quickly that that, that in time Smash is selling somewhere in the region of a hundred thousand copies uh a week in the United States. Um they're having to hire office space, warehouse space all over the city, uh, outside of their uh, their office on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard, office and warehouse space. There are pallets, pallets, pallets of smash lined up with people guarding them because they don't have space inside to 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 to, uh, to house them. Sony Records get wind of what's happening and they offer Brett. Uh, Brett, who, by the way, at this point is becoming addicted to, to heroin, crack, and cocaine, uh, they offer Brett $50, million for a 49% stake in his company. And he, he, he turns that down. He says that the numbers were too, really too enormous to compute. But, he, you know, they stayed independent. The label stayed independent. And, you know, they also... And still, still uh, independent today. ...was a remarkable... Yeah. Full independent today... Smash remains the best-selling uh, rock guitar album released on an independent label. Adele has usurped its title uh, as, as, as the best-selling. Adele's records have, have usurped the title. But this also was the first time where you didn't have to go, certainly for a rock band. NWA had done it, but for a rock band, you didn't have to go to a major or to an independent that was distributed by a major. Epitaph was an independent, and its distributors were independent too. And so, in terms of, 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 of that's pure, that's punk rock in its purest form. And anyone that, that that criticizes the Offspring during that period for anything that they did has, I think, with respect, got it bang wrong. So we, you know, we we, we talked to, about Green Day and the Offspring, obviously, Bad Religion, No Effects. Um, but there's a and, and, and I think all of these guys sat down with you multiple times for interviews over the, the decades, yeah. except for one band, and that's Rancid. Why is that? Rancid uh, and, and, and I, I had all sorts of uh, people helping me get in touch with people. Um, uh, my friend Frank Turner, a singer, singer songwriter mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier, uh, who has impeccable credentials as, as a former Epitaph alumni. Uh, even he couldn't unlock the rancid box for me. Uh, and, and I was not totally surprised, but a little bit disappointed because I have interviewed rancid on numerous occasions back when they did press. Um, but now they just have a total press lockdown. I, w- I was, I was slightly stung perhaps, uh, that I wasn't able to make my case that this just, just this, that this was 
what I was attempting to create was something that 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 was a chronicle of those of those times, and that that, that I would like them to contribute to it simply because it was something that I believe it was worth contributing yeah. to. Um, I was fortunate. I mean, if for if for example it was Green Day that that, that didn't speak with me, um, despite the fact that I've inter- interviewed Green Day on you know literally right, dozens right. of occasions. That that would have been that would have been a, a problem. I could have written around it, but it was important to me that I got the offspring and Green Day. I can live with not getting rancid. The, the fact that the set is is not complete because of their absence is an irritation to me. But I had Brett Gerovitz's take on them, who signed them and produced them, and I had Lawrence Livermore, who saw them become rancid uh, as the owner of Lookout Records from Operation Ivy. So I had first-hand accounts of, of, of Rancid, even if it wasn't their first-hand account. Um, so I was able to write around it. And I, and I think, I do think, um, I mean, I've sort of been perhaps honest to a fault in the introduction when I say that I couldn't get hold of them. I think the only, only a sharp-eyed reader would notice that I hadn't got them because when I have someone that spoke to me specifically for the book, I use the word stays rather than said. Uh, and all of the rancid quotes are said, even though they're, they're said to me, they're said to me some years previously. They're just they're just awkward, you know. They just don't want to do it, and if they don't want to do it, then then that's obviously g- good for them, I suppose. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm trying pumped. not to sound trying not to sound too wounded <laughs> here that, that they didn't make an exception for me, but they did not. So so I, I, I I'm going to have to suck that up. All right, a, a big point you make in the book is how the music literally saved some of its popes, priests, acolytes, and layman's lives. How? Uh, of, of the, the the lives of the people involved yeah. in it, you and mean? and uh, and even the the audience themselves, and uh, uh, you know that uh, this this you know this this was a a, a real lifesaver in some ways. Yeah, it was, but it, but it was it was it was also a life threatener in some ways as well. Um, it, it dawned on me uh, as 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 I was writing the book that with the exception of a member of Pennywise who committed suicide, um, which isn't, which I don't, I, I don't think is, I, I, I don't think that that's related to, to, to the story. I think that perhaps uh, that that's the kind of thing that, that might well have happened regardless of the circumstances in which. Well, you also himself. write about Darby crash and uh, his suicide. Well, yeah. I mean, Dar- Darby Crash, but, but Darby Crash of the Gems is in the prologue. That, that, that's, that's not really the story right. I'm telling. It's, right. That's, that's the, the, the precursor. That's the yeah. grounding. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, everyone in the story made it out alive, you know, uh, and this wasn't a given. Um, <laughs> Brett Gorovitz, as, as, as I've said, became addicted to heroin. He was, if not addicted to crack, he was certainly using crack. He was using cocaine. He was in jail a lot. Um, never prison, but jail. Uh, Mike Ness from Social Distortion. How Mike Ness made it through, I don't know. Um, but you know, in the in the early to mid '80s, alcoholism, terrible, terrible heroin use, ODing all the time, in jail all the time. Uh, and um, Tim Armstrong from Rancid, um, you know, 
terrible alcohol use, terrible alcoholism, um, drug use also um, on the streets, you know, living in a Salvation Army, Army hostel. Um, and and so, yeah, the remarkable thing I think about this is, is sorry, I didn't know if I finished my thought there. What 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 struck me while writing the book, and the, the, the interesting thing about writing a book is that the story becomes clearer as you write it. You're sort of you're writing a story and making the argument, and then it comes into sharper focus as it appears on the page. Uh, and as it dawned on me that this was a tale of two cities uh, or two areas, it dawned on me also that, that what I'm telling is is essentially a happy story. Now, journalistically speaking, that's not often a good thing. Um, but there were very, very troubled times for so many of the people involved, uh, you know, but they all yeah. made it through and, and they all prospered. All of the bands about, about whom I write are still together. Um, they're still making music. They still identify as punk rock bands. Uh, and although everything changed in terms of, you know, its wider appeal uh, and the fact that suddenly Hot Topic were selling Sex Pistols T-shirts... Uh, and and even black flag t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, the music itself, the scene itself, didn't really change very much. It just got bigger, and I think that that's because um, the, the bands were strong. You know, they were already strong. They'd been made strong by the fact that no one gave a damn, and they'd lived. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them had lived tough. You know, uh, and so nothing was really going to surprise them, even overwhelming success. And and even Green Day. Who who took the most brick bats, um, and, and Billy Joe Armstrong would have his own um, battles with alcoholism many years later that that that, that he would address, uh, and he's now uh, sober. Um, but it, you know, even Green Day didn't implode in the way that Nirvana imploded, despite being you know placed under similar amounts of strain. Um, so yeah, it's a happy story, and despite you know many attempts at self-sabotage by many of the participants involved, they endured. You know, and I'm 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 very pleased that they did, and I'm very pleased that I'm able to write about the fact that they did. So, you know, in the grand era of the music of the latter half of the 20th century, what we call rock and roll, where, where do you think this moment mm -hmm. stands in that uh, that history, that retelling? Uh, I think it stands equal to any guitar-driven um, cultural, youth cultural movement, uh, whether that be grunge, uh, whether certainly the, the original explosion of punk. Um, and I, I think that that's, I think that that's to me is obvious. I don't, I don't know how, how universal Britpop's appeal was, um, but here it was a, a national sensation. Um, uh, I just don't think it, it's quite been given the credit that it deserves, really. Um, I don't think it's necessarily more significant than, than anything else. Um, I don't think it's... Uh, I just don't think it's as lauded and as examined as it as 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 it, as it deserves to be. Really, I think it's too easy to dismiss it as sort of if if grunge was punk, then Green Day a new wave. You know, it's like suddenly the Cars. Uh, although I like the Cars a lot, don't get me wrong, but the Cars uh, after uh, after the Sex Pistols, <laughs> you know, and right, and. Right. 
and commercial that, success uh, 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 of this new wavy sort of music. I see your point. Yeah, that, that it was that it was palatable and that it was suburban and that, and thus it was, uh, or that it appealed to suburbia. Uh, although, of course, Nirvana did too. Let's not forget that Nirvana sold many millions of albums. It's not it's not kids in you know in uh, in it's not just kids in Hollywood and and Manhattan that are buying those records and 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 you know central London, you know these are kids out in Des Moines and and whatnot buying these records too. Um, that it was somehow harmless. Uh, the view seemed to be that it was somehow harmless, and that and that it was sort of a slightly. Pa- it was greeted with, you know, by <sighs> opinion formers and tastemakers. I shudder. You might have heard by my sigh that I shuddered even at saying those words. <laughs> We're able to dismiss it with an affectionate ruffle of the hair and say, oh, you know, there, there you go. That that's cute. What you're doing is cute, but it's not more than cute. I I, I think that it's a lot more than cute, and it was both annoying and pleasing that Green Day at least got their due with the release of American Idiot. It was just annoying. It was pleasing that they finally did so. It was annoying that it took people so long to finally recognize what it was the band were capable of of, of achieving. Um, so, you know, Green Day, Green Day have got their credit. As for the rest of the bands, I'm not sure that they have, and I, I hope that... Uh, in, in, in at least a small way, I've, I've, I've been able to make the case for them for them for them getting that credit. I think you have in uh, in this new book, Smash Green Day, Offspring, Bad Religion, No Effects, and the '90s Punk Explosion. Ian Winwood, thanks for being our guest on Deeper Digs in Rock today. And thank you very much for having me. It really has been a pleasure. Great job, Ian, a true believer in the music. What a great book, and I hope you found the discussion interesting and informative. Uh, Like I said at the top, this is sort of a missing piece to the overall story of rock and roll. There's a lot to love about those times and those bands, especially Green Day. They are high up in the pantheon and deserve every accolade that they get. But I am glad to know the details of how they got there uh, with the help of an underground scene thought left for dead, but truly driven by the marginalized kids who wouldn't let go uh, with all the DIY attitude and hard work uh, to build a foundation. You know, first with Bad Religion, No Effects, and others leftovers from the 80s, and then with a whole slew of 90s pop punkers that without whom there wouldn't have been an explosion that we just discussed. So go out and get the details in Smash, Green Day, 
the offspring, bad religion, no effects in the 90s punk explosion by Ian Winwood and published by our dear friends at the Capo Press. Okay, uh, that's it for me this week. Uh, I got to go take my vitamins and hopefully kill off the rest of this cold. Until next week, I am Christian Swain, and this is Deeper Digs in Rock, a Pantheon podcast. Keep up the rockin'. to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes... Google Play and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 